Well, we'll go ahead and get started today. Um, may finish up today. We'll see. Um, we're continuing our lesson on uh, what, it, how uh, doing good, um, being good, relates to uh, our identity in Christ um, from a Lutheran perspective. I believe last week we talked about, we were focusing especially on unbelievers and in what sense we can call them um, good and call the things they do good. And we saw that uh, if we're talking in terms of actually good in God's sight, like true and genuine good, unbelievers are simply incapable of doing that because, quite simply, as Hebrews puts it, without faith, it's impossible to please God. More To put it another way, no matter what they're doing, whatever good outside work it is, no matter how beneficial it is to other people, it's ultimately directed towards the service of some idol or other. And therefore, not only is it kind of disordered, but it's in a certain sense a positive evil in God's sight, precisely because it's done in service of somebody who is not God as though that thing is God. And that's also a better way to look at it when we're talking about unbelievers not being able to be, do good. We don't mean that they're always doing horrible criminal activities, obviously. We all know that we all know unbelievers who aren't just being mean to other people or being rabidly selfish all the time. It's better to think of it in terms of idolatries. Their hearts are gripped by devotion to someone who is not God as though that is their source of identity security, meaning, and purpose. And so what they do is, is very much loving. It's very often, it can be, I'm not going to say it's always that way, because there are mean unbelievers, just as there are mean, nasty, quote-unquote, believers, right? But a lot of them are given to doing things that look a lot like the Ten Commandments, and doing it sometimes much better than Christians. And they genuinely, they're unbelieving wives who genuinely love their husbands and their children, who genuinely serve their communities, and are very capable of altruism, self-sacrifice, for something that they rightly see is a greater, higher good than their own personal gain. It's not that it's straightforwardly evil as though it's a crime. It's not even just an external good in the sense that uh, Gail is coming to the office because she wants to get rich quick and she knows being a church secretary is the path to being a multimillionaire. Um, but she doesn't care about anything. She just puts on a good show of it. No, she might even as an unbeliever, Gail is not an unbeliever to my knowledge, but if we, she was an unbeliever, she might be doing it out of genuinely altruistic reasons. Might not even care about the paycheck or what she gets out of it, but just be happy to help her community the people she cares about, and so on and so forth. But again, it's all, it's at the end of the day for an unbeliever, always and only directed towards an idol. Therefore, is always and only directed against God. Even if it does beneficial things that we can praise and call good, and even praise them as pretty decent people. So that in terms of their human relationships, they outshine Christians often enough. So that's what we talked about last time. Were there any lingering questions or things you wanted to talk about that way? So don't hesitate to call those people good. Just be qualifying it in the sense of saying, but it's not God-pleasing kind of good. And it certainly isn't going to earn them any way and ticket into heaven. And in fact, it's still a very corrupt form of good that needs to be brought to the true good and truly good works by bringing them towards service of what's actually true in the world. That is, service devoted to God that proceeds from faith that they are redeemed by Christ alone. 
call him a good unbeliever? <laughs> well, right. In, <laughs> again, in the sense, <laughs> if we're talking about, they're doing, in the terms of interhuman relationships, yes, you can call them good unbelievers. Because <laughs> you can call them, I suppose, good husbands, good wives, good fathers, good children, good presidents, good congresspeople, to the extent there are such things. <laughs> um, but yeah, you can't. But you could never give the impression, and you should never even think that that's quote-unquote apparent good behavior, that's uh, beneficial behavior and beneficial and even virtuous attitude is actually good either in the sight of God or actually fully good in the fullest sense of the word. Because if I love somebody for all the wrong reasons, I'm still doing something very deficient, right? Even though what I'm doing out of that love it's definitely beneficial for the person, definitely better than the alternative of just being mean-spirited, nasty, selfish, and hurtful to the other person. It still is not truly good. Only believers can truly be good in the sense of actually do things that are pleasing to God because they aren't only worshiping idols all the time. All right. So we ended with a statement last time. Uh, I guess it's item C under... Number five on the back of your worksheet, if you still happen to have that with you, where we, we pointed out that if you can actually expect that kind of decency and goodness from unbelievers, and you can because we see it frequently enough, you should likewise be able to expect that kind of decency from believers. And the reason I specify that, we'll get into our next point, but as a good segue to what we'll talk, focus on next, but also, like we mentioned last time, as kind of an uh, argument against the common statements that Christians sometimes make, well, I'm a sinner, I couldn't help it, what could you possibly expect of me? We're all sinful in God's sight, as a way, not of confessing their sin and their evil and their need for God's grace, but as a way of justifying their sin. And saying, you couldn't have expected anything more than me. It was unreasonable for you to expect me to be faithful to my spouse. I'm a poor, to err is human. I'm just a human. Yes, it was bad, but you know what? You can understand and you can get on board with it. God forgives me, so let's just move on. We're okay. God's grace in Christ does not ever justify sin. It justifies the sinner. <laughs> there is never an excuse for evil. That's what makes it evil. <laughs> If there was an excuse for it, it wouldn't be evil. It'd be understandable, and it'd be acceptable, and we should accept it. But precisely because there is no excuse, it is evil and unacceptable, and we should never be okay with it when it happens. Certainly not with ourselves, and we certainly shouldn't try to convince other people that it's all okay, and you should just learn to live with it and be okay with it, because after all, you're a sinner too, and you sin, and since your sin is okay, and I'm not calling you out for that, my sin should be okay too. No. Even unbelievers can act better than that. Therefore, why should you, who is a believer in Christ, act worse than them? <laughs> in fact, uh, our confessions actually say this. This is not just Pastor Rutherford's personal take, hot take on this issue. This is right there in the Augsburg Confession when it's talking about the place of the new obedience and good works. It overtly says that even unbelievers can do good works in things under their reason. That is to say, basically they mean you can do outward, external, civil righteousness. You can be good to other people. They don't overtly say it, but, the, but they go on to say, uh, and certainly we teach that Christians should have a new heart and be obedient. 
So, not my hot take on this. This is simply the way both the Lutheran confessions and as we've already seen the scriptures talk. Christ has freed us from obedience to sin. Therefore, because we have been justified, because we stand at, as good in God's sight by the atoning work of Christ alone, that transforms our hearts so that we start to trust in him and actually start to do good and be good, both in the sight of God and to other people. Doesn't mean we're free from sin, but it does mean we start actually striving to be good and in a certain sense are good. And so we shouldn't excuse ourselves with the idea, because we're always sinners, we're always going to do sinful things, and you have to be okay with that. <laughs> now that gets us to uh, another question that uh, we talked about. Well, and just in fact, I just said it. We know that we are good solely by the fact that God comes to us in Christ, dies on the cross for our sins, pays the penalty our sins and our evils are due under the law, and forgives us, justifies us, purely by grace. So that we are good in God's sight precisely because God looks at us through, I guess you might say, Christ-colored glasses. He sees us as though we are as righteous as Christ, not because we're good, but because Christ was good for us. And, of course, we also talked about how once you have faith, the natural result is that you'll want to start doing good, right? Like James says, faith without works is dead, which is just the other way of saying what Paul says <laughs> Since we've been justified by faith, let us make it our aim to please him. <laughs> and the inverse is kind of true. Works without faith is dead as well. Well, exactly. That's a good way of putting it. <laughs> works without faith are, in fact, dead works. <laughs> so, any, so that leads to the uh, question, therefore, if I, if I become a Christian, then shouldn't I just automatically start being good? Does it happen as an automatic process where basically I went to church one day because my friends dragged me, I heard one humdinger of a sermon from the pastor, and lo and behold, the Spirit convicted me of my sin, and I was brought by the Spirit's work to faith. Again, God gave me this gift of faith that I now trust and believe in Christ, and I realize now I can go home, sit there, on my couch, browsing Netflix until the Spirit just moves me to do good works. I literally have to put no effort into it because it just will happen, right? Isn't that what we're talking about? Fate, good works flow naturally out of faith. A good tree produces good fruit. God's made you good with faith. So it should just happen. And you shouldn't even worry about it, right? You have to grow in your faith. Well, you do have to grow in your faith. That's true. But faith as small as a mustard seed, Bill. Faith as small as a mustard seed. Well, let's look at what the uh, Bible, first of all, says about all of this. I think we all can tell from the way I'm putting this that the answer is, well, no. It probably isn't that I can just go home and sit on my rocking chair and stare at the paint on the wall until suddenly that God automatically makes my heart new. But uh, why not, since we've just said God works faith in us, and that faith necessarily produces good works. Let's go to Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25, for one point that's very important to bear in mind here. Somebody want to read that for us. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. And it is, as it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. 
I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. All right, thank you. So notice what Paul is saying there, first of all. And this is very important to bear in mind when we're thinking about the process of becoming a, quote-unquote, good person who does good works. Christ justifies you. And that puts in, and the Spirit works faith in your heart and uh, puts a new principle inside of you that's no longer driven by idols, but driven by fear, love, and trust of the true God and of his Savior, right? But... Is that the only thing that's in you? Is that the only principle in you once you come to faith? No. What does Paul overtly say still dwells within us? Still got that sin nature. We still have that old Adam, that sinful nature, all of those old desires and impulses and motives and feelings and thoughts. They, our sinfulness is, and corruption is still very much a part of us. And what does Paul say it does against our spiritual nature? It's at war with it. So that, no doubt, Paul, who is uh, considered 100% a saint by God, that is 100% holy, 100% forgiven, 100% good and acceptable in the sight of God because of Jesus, and no doubt for that matter, um, also has an earnest desire to go and serve Christ and live out a life that pleases this Lord who they love so much. Same time, also, always gripped by sinfulness. Um, on the one hand, that they are 100% a sinner. That is to say, um, judged strictly by the law of God, there's still nothing that it purely desires God in them, because even the best desires are still marred and tainted with this stain of sin. And that sinfulness also goes to war against our desire to follow Christ and keep his commandments. So that's, uh, I guess, to make it a little more simplistic than it is, as soon as I hear the uh, word, go and uh, love your wife, I go home and I want to love my wife very purely from a desire to please Christ, but there's something also in it that corrupts that love slightly. So it's also somewhat about me, somewhat maybe overly worshipful of her in all kinds of ways that my sinfulness hedges my love for my wife that God calls me to have. And that I want to have. And that to a very limited extent, thanks to the Spirit, I even have. So that even the best of my works, as Paul says, sin is right there with it. And if this is at war with your saint, does that, with, uh, so to speak, our new obedience, our sanctification, to use the word we usually like to use for this, does that mean that it's just automatically always going to be the case that now that I have faith, I'll always do what's good and pleasing in God's sight? Or that'll even always want to do what's good and pleasing in God's sight. Hardly. No. 
because there is always also this other part of me that isn't just a part of me, that's just another aspect of me that wants exactly the opposite all the time. And so if that is fighting against and gumming up the works of my uh, sanctification, you might say, on the one hand, it implies my sanctification is never going to be complete in this life. I'm never just going to perfectly desire what God wants all the time. And it also means it's probably not going to happen automatically. That is to say, put the, put the gospel in this ear, and out of these hands will always flow good works. Good works do, uh, do necessarily follow from faith, but we want to say they don't follow automatically from faith. Does that make sense, that distinction? Well, if they would automatically flow, then we wouldn't need communion. Well, that's for sure. You wouldn't need to constantly sustain your faith. (laughs) If you're not going to sin, but obviously. Right. And you need to do things like go to communion, Mm -hmm. hear that word, to go back and fight against the sinner. And there's the other point that Paul makes. What does the saint necessarily want to do? Fight against the sinful nature, even though that battle is, to say the least, a little hard. Who will even deliver me from this body of death gripped by sin? Thanks be only to Christ. But the very fact that our new obedience fights against our old disobedience, the very fact that it is this constant battle, demonstrates that it isn't a matter of, now that I've heard the faith, I don't actually have to think about it, will anything. It'll just somehow click automatically. I'll become so good. I will literally be good without thinking about it. Because you'll also have all kinds of other thoughts that are not good at the same time. All kinds of desires, hungers, appetites that you will very much have to recognize, condemn with God, have God's law condemn, repent of, um, seek forgiveness for, and fight against. And that's not automatic. It takes effort. Many, many years ago... When I was younger, there used to be cartoons on Saturday morning mm-hmm. all the time. Well, there were Looney Tunes, and I can remember several of these Looney Tunes. There were pictures of this guy who was who was battling. Excuse me. Anyway, they uh, this had this picture of a guy who was wanting to do good, but then on each shoulder he had his conscience. Here was the good side. Oh, sure. Here Devil the and the angel, so yeah. They were always hollering in his ear, you know, the bad side. No, you got to do it this way. The other side. No, you can't do that, you know. And I, when we get to talking about this, you know, your conscience and wanting to do evil, all I always picture is is these little guys sitting on sure. his shoulder, hollering in his ear, you know, one side and then the other. And you know, those those are, I, I, yeah, Looney Tunes had that a lot too. <laughs> yeah. And one of the things that you have to admit, Looney Tunes was sometimes really good at at uh, getting some deeper truths across <laughs> in a fun way. Um, you notice how are that devil and angel almost always dressed i mean who were the angel and the devil what face did they wear it was always if it was bugs bunny's angel and devil it was bugs bunny in an angel suit bugs bunny in a devil suit right yeah one of them had the halo and one of them had horns right exactly pitchfork horns the other the nice little harp and the thing and they'd always make the angel sound ninny and you know and the devil sound fun and exciting but point being they wore bugs bunny's face Kind of illustrating the point that when we're talking about this, we don't mean necessarily, well, it's true, the devil is always there 
speaking to us, whispering things into our ears. And that's also a good illustration of that. And that the Holy Spirit is also always there. Um, and God's word reminding us, urging us towards um, faith and obedience. Nevertheless, it's also our own hearts that are playing those roles too, right? It's our own hearts that urge us to do that thing. Can't even tell you how many times it comes to me that on, on rainy days like this, for instance, let's just take a very minor instance, where you look at the clock and you're like, I have things to do. I need to go up, get everything ready so that uh, Tasha won't have to help much to do to get ready. And the other part that says, it's so comfortable in bed. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like the devil is the only force out there urging me to do that. He certainly is. I've got a very big part of me that's very happy to listen because it very much wants to just sit there in bed. <laughs> Not that sitting in bed isn't necessarily a bad thing, but if it means shirking your duties, it's a bad thing. <laughs> and so it's me that wars against what I know is my actual duty. <laughs> and it's me, along with the Holy Spirit forming me, who urges myself to get out of bed, right? This is to say, yes, you definitely have Mr. Devilhorn over here. Give him a little pitchfork. <laughs> and you definitely have, we'll, we'll go against the whole angel thing and make it the Holy Spirit over here. Whispering in my ear too, so to speak. Um, but they're whispering to my hearts that they have already, in a certain sense, very truly formed. The devil has had a long time with my heart, forming it to want certain things, and it very much wants those things. Um, by the same token, the new obedience that the Spirit works in me through faith and hope, it is my heart that wants to serve God, that wants to war against my sin. So it is actually me doing this, even though it is God's work in me that forms me to do this. And to, to go even as far as uh, the solid declaration of the formula of Concord in our book of Concord says, we actually are formed so that we can and do cooperate with the Holy Spirit in seeking to do his will. Which is simply to say, our new heart that God gives us actually beats in a way that drives us to struggle to do good and struggle against sin. Which means that uh, the very presence of the sinful nature and the devil and the very presence of the spirit working in our heart lead us to actively, by, our own, by the willpower that God has formed and shaped in faith and hope, work to discipline ourselves. Self-discipline is a necessary component of the Christian life. Turn to 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24 through 27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat the body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. All right. What does Paul say he does? Does Paul say, now that I have the spirit and I've been renewed, I know I'm just going to be good. And so I don't really worry about it. What does he say he does to his own body? Work yeah, just like a runner trains hard, disciplines his body hard to win a race. And by the way, you probably all have grand or know um, people who are in sports, grandkids or whatever, 
Maybe you yourselves were in sports. Is it the case that, well, I picked up a ball, I really liked it, and so I knew I was going to be good at basketball? <laughs> How did the kids get good at basketball if they're good at basketball? Training, training, training. Um, coaches these days want you to shoot 100 free throws every single day so that your body gets formed into the muscle memory so that you don't even have, so that you don't feel like you have to think about it. You work so hard on your body that that behavior becomes practically automatic. That is to say, it's not automatic at all. You've just done it so many times and worked so hard at it that your body just starts to be formed to work that way. Paul is making the very big point, same kind of thing with the new obedience here. Just as the runner trains himself to win the prize, I train myself to run in such a way as to win the prize. I beat my body, which is to say, he says, He's saying, I put my appetites, my hungers, my desires, my, my body, my heart, my mind, my emotions, everything, I work tirelessly on to direct them in the proper way so that they are better suited for following God's commands. For some reason or other, we just don't think about it this way anymore. We just assume that people are basically good, and with even the slightest nudge and the barest of instruction, they'll be good. That's not how parents think about their kids, but for some reason, that's how we talk about people. If that is even remotely true, you know why that's true. It's because you've had parents doing what to their children in a relentless way? Disciplining them. If they don't discipline them, what happens when you leave children to automatically do what they naturally want to do? Kid house down. Oh. <laughs> I'm sure we would have so much broken furniture. It's hard not to have broken furniture with the boys at this age anyway. <laughs> I'm sure the kids would have been dead of a sugar coma long ago, diabetes and all that. I'm positive that uh, probably one of them would have been murdered and pushed down the stairs. <laughs> maybe accidentally, maybe. <laughs> but uh, fact is, the only reason they know how to treat each other half decently is because they took a lot of curbing of their natural desires. And that didn't just happen automatically by taking them to Sunday school, telling them a few Bible stories and saying, by the way, Jesus forgives you, loves you. No doubt, my kids will say they believe in Jesus. I believe they have faith. Does that mean, therefore, as a parent, I can just sit back and watch the fruits of the Spirit bubble up in them? <laughs> no, because they are also still gripped by sin. And like Paul, they, as much as myself, need constant disciplining. And when we say discipline, just so there's no confusion about what we mean, we mean restraining and training and instructing yourself so that you can perform a certain way and not other ways. And that's work. That takes effort. That's the very meaning of the word discipline. Not an incidentally, discipline comes from the word disciple, which is a follower of Jesus. Um, and by the way, as we'll see in just a second, there are both positive parts to this and negative parts to this self-discipline. By positive, by the way, what I mean, I don't mean a good and bad, that's often how we use it. I mean, you're saying something as a yes, as something you're putting forward, negative, that means you're saying no to something, um, turning away from. And well, let's just look at this a little bit. Let's go to uh, Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 to 17. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves. 
of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, is circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. All right. Notice how Paul puts this when he's talking about uh, urging people to walk in their faith. By the way, the very fact that he feels the need to urge people kind of implies he doesn't actually think it's just going to happen simply by preaching the gospel at them and saying, okay, you have faith. I don't need to say anything else. <laughs> the, he still encourages and admonishes both with law and gospel with the word of God to form people into a much more mature and developed faith. And the way he does this, by, and which also leads to a more mature and developed faith, Life, by the way. Um, and notice he does two things, like we were talking about. First, he starts with a good list of negative, where he says things like, put to death, rid yourself, and of course, simply, do not. Basically, there's this whole way of talking where he assumes that part of this self-disciplining process, and it's very much the way he talks self-disciplining, he doesn't say, church leaders, go and do this to your people. Or he doesn't even say, God will do this to you. Although he does, of course, in the background from other things he says, means that ultimately when this happens, it's God's work on you. We don't want to start taking credit for it. But when God works on you and with you, he does also work through you. That is to say, he works through your hands. He doesn't just do it by some magic force outside of you necessarily. As he changes your heart, your heart becomes an active co-participant with God in the process, driven by God, led by God, certainly not able to do it yourself. If God decided to stop, you would not be able to do one thing. It is 100%, let's say, the work of God, but a great deal of God's work is done by leading you to do these things. And that itself, again, does not simply mean it automatically happens in you. Um, therefore, Paul urges you to take an active role in this. And so negatively, um, again, saying there are things that are in you, no doubt, that are inclined to evil, and you need to actively war with them. And that in itself is a very interesting thing. Um, it's not just positive messages about this is what you can be, this is what you ought to be. There's a very big part of don't do this, which you're probably prone to do. This is bad in you. Put it to death. And it's very important to say this in our day and age, where I think we've mentioned this in Bible studies and sermons before, but it's worth mentioning again. We are so caught with the idea that the most important, as a culture, that people are basically good, and it's important, above all else, to help people learn to express themselves. 
and feel affirmed in their self-expression. The basic idea is don't negate people. <laughs> Never give them the impression that their desires, their hungers, their self, uh, sense of self is bad. In fact, help cultivate the ability to perform what they think is their depths even more so. But no, there are appetites, Paul says, in you that are not worth expressing. <laughs> then in fact, parts about you that you should not only not express, but you should actively repress <laughs> and put to death. Get rid of it. This part of you is bad. Don't let it out. That's part of discipline. I mean, one of the most basic things we think about as part of child discipline is helping them to repress and control themselves in public spaces, right? So that they don't decide to fly off the handle and play a warouty game of tag in the aisle of Walmart, right? For all kinds of reasons. <laughs> Why not? They're just expressing themselves. They just have a good desire to play with each other, right? Well, not everything in us is worth expressing. We need to become people who are worth expressing before we start expressing ourselves. And that's what discipline is all about, making us people worth expressing. <laughs> By making us people who express faith and hope and love. Um, and that again means recognize there are parts of you, things you want, motives you have that are bad. When the wife comes to me or the husband comes to me and says, I'm just not happy in my marriage. I think God wants me to be happy. There's this other girl who can make me happy. Pastor's job, fellow Christian's job, good parent's job is to say, that's an evil appetite you have. That's wrong. Put it to death. Start loving your wife. You clown. And frankly, it's good to help them feel ashamed of those things. We think that shame is a bad thing. Shame is a good God-given gift. When it's appropriately placed, we should be ashamed of evil. We should be ashamed of unsuited and unfit and uh, unlawful desires and behaviors. And we should feel guilty about them when they're there. Because we actually have guilt in the sight of God when they're there. Um, so on the one hand, self-repression, self-mortification, if you want the fancy term they like to use back in the day and the... Basically, putting yourself to death. Killing those aspects of you because they are not worth having alive. Um, then, of course, he turns the page and goes to the positive aspects. Where he talks about putting on a new self. Clothing yourself in these kinds of beha habits, behaviors, thoughts, feelings, and attitudes. Basically, do these. Because these are good and worth and they take practice to start to do. Do you think that uh, the Corinthians here, or the Colossians, I mean, they heard what Paul said, and right away they just said, oh, just a matter of stopping doing that and starting doing that. Thanks, Paul. I'll do it tomorrow, and I'll be perfect at it. Is that how it works with your kids, even with yourself? <laughs> how many of you, let's take a diet program as a great instance. People go on a diet usually because they themselves want to go on a diet, right? It's not usually the case, although it can happen, that somebody else forces them to go on a diet. And since they recognize it's good for me to eat A, B, and C in such and such amounts at such and such times, it's bad for me to eat X, Y, and Z 
in such and such amounts at such and such times. Therefore, since I know the information, I know what's right and what's wrong, I will always be able to do it without even practicing. <laughs> How many of you have ever tried to diet in any sense? <laughs> and the key word is try. <laughs> we are not Yoda here. Do or do not. There is no try. <laughs> no, we know there is some serious effort expended here. And very often it is hard. And if you just try to do it. And in fact, what's, what usually is the case is with diets is you start off really well. <laughs> because you know what's good. You know what's bad. You're fully devoted to doing what's good, right? But then you start to even have success, and what happens? Success becomes your enemy. Because you think, hey, I did okay. I got, I'll convince myself I did good enough, I'll, I can stop at this point. First of all, what's the problem of let's stop at this point? After what you did before. Right, there's, there's never a, it doesn't seem with diets or with sanctification for that matter, that there's ever a point where I can say, okay, I made it to this step, this is a pretty good step, I'll just stand here now. It seems like you're always either moving in the right direction or moving in the wrong direction, right? Always. And when you stop and say, I did pretty well, let's just congratulate myself and enjoy the moment, what inevitably happens is you start going back to those old habits because you stop fighting the old habits. Or you start giving yourself excuses to let a few of the bad habits in. And before you know it, you're right back where you started or very close to where you started or even worse off than before. It is a relentless, non-stop battle self-discipline. This is why basketball players, again, they don't take 100 shots, free throws a day until they get to a certain percentage and then stop taking free throws. Otherwise, what happens in a few months? Can't make those free throws amazingly anymore. <laughs> Constant discipline. Constant going through. It, it takes a lot of self-examination. And this is one thing we've kind of fallen out of the habit of. With confession, for instance. How many of you spend time during the day on a regular basis saying, here's some things I know that I did that were against the law of God. And here's why I think I did them. Here's what I think I could do to try to put those to an end. Here's some things I could do, or I did well, or I'd like to do better, or things I could put in place of those. Almost never. Heck, I don't do that. I'm not going to pretend that I'm doing a better job than you. Normally, what happens to me is... Occasionally, I mean, it's not all, occasionally you'll start thinking about it for whatever reason, but you don't do it in any programmatic, disciplined way. And then come Sunday, you just kind of rattle off, oh yeah, I guess I am a sinner, God, please forgive me. With no real notion of, first of all, why you're calling yourself a sinner, except you have this vague realization, God calls me a sinner, therefore it's true, which is a good realization to have. <laughs> it's not about recognizing your exact sins confession, it's about recognizing the truth of God's word. But what happens and you don't ever recognize your specific sins. You're doing pretty well. You don't need it, it's amazing. First of all, you start to actually get the sense that I'm a good person. I'm not really that sinful. I know God's right. I am a sinner. Thanks, God, for picking up, I guess, maybe the five or six times this week I might have dropped the ball. I can't even think of them. Probably weren't even five or six of them. But by and large, I've got this, God. Thanks for forgiving me for that little bit. And more and more, I put my trust in myself and less and less in God. So on the one hand, it's good for faith to take time uh, to reflect on what exactly or on instances of sins to help you recognize the truth that you still have the disease very much a part of you. 
But on the other hand, talking about this kind of discipline that Paul's talking, if I never actually even pay attention to my sexual immorality, to my all these negative things, my gossiping, sure, I called up uh, who knows how many people to spread the latest bad story about some person who did something stupid, but I'm not going to think about that. I don't even take it as an item of my reflection at the end of the day. I don't even try. And therefore, I'm not even aware I did it. Am I going to be able to put to death that desire if I don't even take time to see, do I have that desire? I'm going to have a lot harder time of it. In fact, one of the reasons God says in Deuteronomy, take these laws, teach them to your children, write them on your doorposts and your gateposts, put them in the phylactery on your head, basically a big old box on your head. The point wasn't literally tie it up on there. The point was surround yourself with the law. Why? This is a constant ongoing process. You cannot even escape the process because the law surrounds you on every side. So it's good to do that. Take time, at least before Sunday, when you come to church early. I would say, sit down in the pew, take at least even five minutes. I'd recommend you do this more often, take more time, but even five minutes before church, just run through your week a little bit and think about, okay, what, what have I done wrong this week? How have I failed in my vocation? How have I shown that I don't trust, fear, and love God the way I'm supposed to? How have I shown a lack of confidence in Christ? And get specific with yourself. And then bring those forward in your heart during that silent period, the whole 10 seconds. People get antsy if I wait more than 10 seconds of that silence after confession for self-examination. I don't say then the catechism tells us that self-examination that we should do. Exactly. Then not only confess it, take comfort in the fact that God has atoned for that. Hear the words of the absolution and then strive to put it to death in the week ahead. And then focus on what are some things God commands me to do that I can't stand to do better. Actually try. We've gotten way too lax in our teaching about new obedience and sanctification in the sense that we don't even talk about it in more than a let's just let us do good works. And we don't ever say anything like Paul, for instance, spends a lot of time in his letters saying that Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, says to his disciples, if you abide in my truth, the truth will say, uh, all these kinds of things, I'm the prime, you're the branches, so on and so forth, where he goes on, by this people will know that you are my disciples. How? If you love one another, where he condemns sin. Tells people to abstain from sin, to wrestle against sin, just like we talked about with Gehenna in that one sermon. Jesus says more or less the same things Paul does. Why did we stop saying it? And why do we stop saying it to ourselves? Because we've lost discipline. But it's a very important thing. So that gets to the question, how do we actually cultivate this being good, this self-discipline? Um, let's turn to uh, John 15, 1 through 14. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. 
If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in my words, remain in, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love hath no, no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. All right, there's a lot in that little uh, speech from Jesus. Again, night he was betrayed to his disciples. And it basically summarizes everything that we've said in this entire course of lessons. And I'll just read the worksheet because it's a little more succinct than what I'll probably say if I try to rattle it off. God's grace in Christ is what makes us good in God's sight. It's what justifies us. Christ saying that if I remain in you, the Father remains in you and so forth. Christ's loving acts of justifying us by bringing us to repentance and forgiving us, baptizing us, feeding us with his body and blood are what therefore result in reforming us into people who respond to this gracious love by leading us to love God and others. Okay, so um, with that summary there that Jesus basically kind of gives us, the key point I want to focus on for this particular question of how we actually cultivate this good in us, first and foremost important thing with a bullet point is what Christ says, remain in me. If you don't remain in me, you will not be able to bear fruit. Fruit being the good works, the obedience of faith that faith and hope bring forth. How do you remain in Christ, though? And how does Christ remain in you? Well, easy way. The most important way to have good fruits cultivated in you is to have yourself exposed to Christ and his justifying grace, which makes you abide in him. Regular use of the word and the sacraments, regular exposure to Christ coming to you in the word of the gospel, in the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, that is the single most important thing that will be able to make you, so to speak, a good person who bears much fruit. Because if you don't remain in Christ, in the word and sacraments, if you refuse to have yourself exposed to that, you're cutting yourself off from where Christ exposes himself to you. You're cutting him off from the very means he uses to bring you to faith, to come into your heart and to remain in your heart. And so what will inevitably happen? Or at least what is in very real danger of happening? Cut off from the means by which he gives you his grace that gives you faith. How do you cut yourself? You may run the risk of cutting yourself off from faith entirely, from Christ entirely. And then all of your works, no matter how good they seem, no matter how much you insist, well, I have faith in Christ, that doesn't really result in any actual fear, love, or trust of God. You might just be fooling yourself, pretending that you have Christ in your heart, when in fact, Christ is not in your heart. Because you don't care a whit about the grace he offers you. Word and sacraments are the most important things. Meditating on his work for us on the cross, on his word of forgiveness to us, 
um, confessing our sins, seeking absolution. Those are the ways Christ comes to us, and therefore those are the ways he inserts himself into us. To deny that is simply to deny the basic Lutheran position, (laughs) that Christ comes to us through the means of grace. That is how he gives grace, and therefore that is how his grace comes into our hearts. So that's the most important thing. In fact, it's perfectly true that when that is in play, all the rest is in place for it to follow. Because when Christ exposes you to his word and sacrament, as Romans 10 says, what is very real, a very real possibility? Faith comes by hearing. And once that faith comes, now you've got a new heart. And that faith might lead you, almost will necessarily lead you, in fact, necessarily will lead you, to start struggling against your sin to start the process of working on self-discipline. This is the sufficient cause. This is all you really need to achieve self-discipline because it's the first step that it contains and drives all the other steps. If you have the grace of Christ in your heart, all I'm simply saying is then your newly formed heart in faith and and hope will flow out towards striving to love God and love others, fighting against your sin. Yeah, we didn't say automatic. It doesn't mean sit back and do nothing. It means you will be driven to war against those things. It's not accidental that the people who cut themselves off from church for long periods of time are also very often the ones who are least likely to to strive to discipline their obedience to God for obedience to God's sake. In fact, they'll usually offer excuses for why their love for other people is sufficient. And they don't need to worry so much about how their love for God is displayed. Because they've lost Christ. Or at least, certainly given their sinful half, a huge upper hand in this warfare. But this also, when you have that word and sacraments um, work on you, when God's Spirit works on you in this way to bring you to faith, um, this leads to another very real way that we can cooperate, so to speak, with God in this act of self-discipline, and that's meditating on God's law. That is actually, like we just talked about with Deuteronomy, surrounding yourself with God's law to see what he requires, what he forbids, and to train your heart and your mind to think that way. Psalm 1. If you ever want to commit psalms to memory, there's, there's two big ones I would always suggest everybody commit to memory. Psalm 23, of course, and Psalm number 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates both day and night. He is like a stream planted, or a tree planted beside streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and whose leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the congregation of the righteous, or sorry, sinners will not, wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Fundamental to that psalm, and by the way, um, it's kind of just a summary statement of Psalm 119. Um, Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible, and it is all about the benefits and the necessity and the blessing of God's law and meditation on it. Meditate on his law, like we just talked about. 
take time at least every week to reflect on what God's law says about your behavior, your desires, your appetites, your emotions. Take time to confess what God's law says about your emotions, your thoughts, your behaviors, your attitudes as sinful. Take time to ask God for forgiveness and the will to do better. And then strive to understand how you can live according to what God's law enjoins. Meditate on it. And, God, and by the way, notice, what's really the source of, therefore, all of our self-discipline in that case? It's the word of God. In this case, his law. Acting as a guide for the Christian. Another very good way to do this. Gather with Christians who will encourage you in doing good and avoiding people who will encourage you away from doing good. We all know that there are people who call themselves Christians, people who don't call themselves Christians, who aren't good company. Paul even says at one point in the scriptures, bad company corrupts good morals. We all know. We, as parents, you all went through the experience, I'm sure, when you were worried about your kids in high school because you were hoping they wouldn't get mixed up with the wrong crowd, right? Why? Because you, while you trust and love your kids' decision-making, you know what peer pressure can do, both good and bad. Um, Paul knows it too. It's how humans were built to be social creatures who are encouraged to a great extent to do either good or ill by other people and their association with other people. And Paul directly says, don't gather with the bad sort of people who are going to lead you astray. There are people out there who might have might, you might certainly want to love, pray for, speak the word of God to, but not spend your time with because they will encourage you away from Christ. Rather, as we've seen in a previous Bible study, Hebrews chapter 10, 24, 25, Paul overtly says, do not forsake the gathering of yourselves together. That is Christians. Why? So that you can encourage and spur one another on to good works, knowing congregating on Sunday mornings, both to hear the word in the sacraments, to encourage one another in faith, to uh, speak comfort to those sinners who are broken, those who are going through hard times and suffering difficulties and trusting God and who need patience. All of that conversation is very important, but it also is important to have conversation where we're able to encourage one another to do good things, to live out our vocations well. In Men's Club, we just taught, we're reading about uh, in Titus about how Paul admonishes older Christians. Be good examples to younger Christians. Take time to talk with them and give them a demonstration of what a good, solid Christian man looks like. Lead them in that way. Because they're not going to figure it out for themselves. You need to gather as a congregation in Christ to help one another. Then, of course, there's a D. We'll do, I'm just breezing through these, kind of. Um, discipline yourself, and we've talked about that, and especially submit to discipline. I think we all know one of the big problems with our own hearts playing the part of the devil on our shoulder, and our own hearts playing the part of the angel, so to speak, is that sometimes the devil on our shoulder can look very convincingly to be correct, <laughs> And doesn't always appear as the devil with the horns, but sometimes casts himself as the angel of light, right? Convinces you that the bad thing is the good thing. And if you're only left to yourself and your own understanding of the word of God, um, no doubt the word of God can penetrate through that. It can help you see the sin that you're being advised by your own heart and by the devil spurring that on. But far better, too, 
be within the congregation of Christians who are able to not only spur you on to good works, but to help you get a clearer sense of what right and wrong is that isn't bound up with precisely the temptations and uh, biases and things that already move you, right? The heart is, as Scripture says, deceitful above all things. Good that we have other people who aren't gripped by our exact same deceits, <laughs> who can help calm us on our self-deceits. And on that score, that's one of the reasons the church practices what we call church discipline, what Christ himself commands the congregation to perform. When a brother sins against you, what do you do? Go and show him his fault. Just between the two of you, for sure. If he repents, you've won a brother, and in a very real sense, you've also helped discipline him more, helped disciple him more, if you want to talk that way, by helping him see what Christ really requires, his own sin, his own need for grace, his own gracious Lord, and then seek to obey Christ. If that doesn't work, Bring two or three others so that all things can be established. If that doesn't work, bring the elders of the church. Bring it before the whole congregation and help admonish him. This is discipline him. Help him learn what he needs to say no to and what he needs to say yes to as a matter of faith. Right? And that's not self-discipline. That's discipline imposed on them. And that's a good thing. We need other people to discipline us, just like I desperately needed my parents to discipline me. Because there was no way I was going to be capable of self-discipline as a child. We're not fully capable of self-discipline as mature Christians. We need the discipline of the community that speaks and is formed by the word and sacraments of Christ. And to cut ourselves again off from that discipline is to open ourselves up to fighting this battle alone. And all the self-deceits that the devil is so very good at inserting into our hearts. We'll close, I went a little over, but uh, we'll close this lesson with this very sum, big summary point. Um, I'll just read it for us. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Second half. Continue to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So remember, above all, it is God who makes us good. First of all, and most importantly, by justifying us with Christ. That is the whole source and foundation and end of our goodness in God's sight. But then that goodness of God towards us also extends to God moving our hearts and our wills to desire what he sees as good and therefore affects whatever success we have in attaining the good. God is 100% behind not only our justification but our sanctification. Nevertheless, as he works in us, we work with him to accomplish that. And it is an unrelenting task. That's not a bad thing. That's a joyous thing because, remember it's not your success in that task that makes you good in God's sight either. Christ, who's already accomplished everything, who makes you good in God's sight. And what makes being good in God's, in obedience to God's will, not a burden that you have to fulfill in order to be good to God, but simply as an outflow of your thankfulness to God, who has already secured you in his hands. So let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. I'm sorry, I just can't stop. I should have been focusing on prayer. I was focusing on another example. You might be thinking, well, if we just talk about how it's all this self-discipline, this constant warfare, how could it not be a burden? I suppose one way of talking about this is you might think of it like soldiers fighting World War II. There were certainly some who were drafted who had no desire to be there and were forced along, and it was a burden to them to fight. Do you think a lot of people who were fighting in those battles would have thought about this as, oh, this is such a horrible burden that I have to do this. I wish I didn't have... No, they recognize it's extremely hard, extremely painful, dangerous, and excruciatingly difficult, more than anything else they've ever done in their life, and yet are glad to do it. Because it's not a burden that they have to do, they're forced to do. They willingly do it because they know how they love their country. <laughs> Same kind of thing we're talking about with the Christian seeking self-discipline. It's hard, it's unple unpleasant, definitely. Difficult, takes extreme patience, sometimes is excruciating, but not burdensome in the sense of, gosh, I wish I didn't have to do this. But in the sense of, I love God and I know his love for me has made him worth fighting. 